Malachi, the book of Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, the last in our series on the book of the Twelve. And for those of you who've been with us each of the last 11 weeks, you know that we skipped Jonah. Uh, We're saving Jonah for likely September, where we will have a, a series just through the book of Jonah, because Jonah is a book about mission. Certainly it's an important part of the book of the Twelve, but hopefully we can, we can remember these last eleven for a month, and when we regather, you know, post-Labor Day and everybody's back, hopefully we can dive in together about a series on mission. But today, we conclude our series through the book of the Twelve with Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, with the sermon I've titled, Where is His Honor? Where is His Respect? That's a question that I'm not asking you, but that God is asking of us. The people of God have rebuilt the second temple and the blessings that were promised in Haggai and Zechariah. They look around and they say, well, I don't see these material, physical blessings. And I, apparently God is out to launch and how I live just doesn't matter. And so God says in verse 6 of chapter 1, If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect? Malachi means my messenger, and he writes to a people who've, who've become cynical. They've grown weary about waiting on the Lord and basically thrown up their hands and say, have said, what does it matter anyway? In verse 1 of chapter 3, Malachi, the messenger, promises that another messenger will come who will prepare or clear the way of the Lord to enter into his temple We know that this messenger is John the Baptist and that the Lord does indeed enter his temple when Jesus comes to the temple on the eighth day and Simeon sees him there. But in his own day, Malachi also functions as a messenger warning the people of God that they are not ready for the day of the Lord. They they think they're just waiting around for the day of the Lord. And one commentator put it this way, they're going to get what they're waiting for, but it's not going to be what they wanted. The prophet builds his case against them, demonstrating that they aren't ready for the coming of their king. Why? Because they've withheld the honor due their father and the respect due their master. Rather than honor God as father and respect him as master, the priests are accepting, we find in chapter 1, defiled and stolen and lame and sick and blemished sacrifices. Whatever it takes to make sure that the priestly class gets fed will be acceptable no matter how bankrupt the unsacrificial system of sacrifice has become. God says in verse 10 of chapter 1, it'd be better for you to shut the temple doors than to keep up the charade. And I must confess to you, sometimes I wonder about churches across our land this morning, how many of them will God say it'd be better if you just shut the doors than keep up? The charade. In verses 10 through 16 of chapter 2, God moves through His messenger Malachi from the theme of generous giving to the theme of our relationships. Our relationships with one another and our relationships in marriage. We find the words uh, deal treacherously or to break the faith five times in those verses. People are breaking faith in their covenant relationship with one another. They're breaking faith in their covenant relationship with their wives to marry foreign women. And this is where we find that classic verse, God hates divorce. At the end of the day, the people of God have become what one commentator calls functional atheists. 
Yeah, they, they say they belong to God, that they bear God's name, but if you evaluated their lives, what difference was God making in their life? What difference could you find between someone who named the name of God and an atheist? They may as well be atheists. Today, our failure to honor and respect God shows up in the very same ways. It shows up in our attitude toward generous giving to advance God's mission, and it shows up in the shallowness of our commitments to one another and within our marriages. And then in verses 17 of chapter 2, down through verse 12 in chapter 3, which we just read, God answers these cynics who ask this question, Where is the God of justice anyway? The blessings of God are delayed or they're dead, so what we do really doesn't matter. And to this, Malachi says to them, and he says to us this morning, it does matter. God is seeking His honor. He is seeking His reverence. He is seeking the respect that He is due. And where it is given to Him, in those places where it is given to Him, those are the places where His blessing lands. And we become a land of delight, and the nations are won thereby. God is indeed winning the nations, but the question is, North Roanoke, will we be a part of it? To give God, the honor and reverence He is due, there's three things Malachi shows us very quickly in this text. First, we must turn to God and be refined by Him. The messenger that's promised has already come. It's John the Baptist, the Lord coming into His temple. He's already arrived. He is our King, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must give generously of our resources and our lives. We must give them to Him in righteousness. And, so, and thirdly, we must expect a harvest in our hearts and among the nations. We must expect a harvest in our hearts and among the nations. First, we must turn to God and be refined by Him. We see that in verses 2 and 3 and in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Malachi promises that the Lord that they are mockingly questioning, oh, He's going to come. And he's not just coming to the temple, he's coming to his temple. Do you see that in verse 1? He's not just coming into any old temple, it's his temple. It's there for his glory, for his honor, for his fame. And that God will come into his temple. And we know that John the Baptist has indeed come, and he has cleared the way. The word clear or prepare is is highway construction terminology. I don't know if any of you ever built roads, but it's, it's clearing out curves and knocking down any obstacles to pave a straight path for God to come into His temple. And that is exactly what John the Baptist has done. His father Zechariah says in Luke 1, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways. The messenger has come, and Christ the King has entered His temple. So Simeon declared, Declared when he said that he had seen the Lord's salvation when Jesus was there just eight days old. And though Christ comes for the purpose of salvation, right? John chapter 3, he didn't come to condemn, he came to save. Nevertheless, because he is light and because he is holy, his very presence brings condemnation to those who do not receive the light. Which is why in verse 5 it speaks of God coming in judgment. He comes for salvation, but... His very presence brings condemnation to all who do not offer themselves to God in righteousness. Do you see that in verse 3 of chapter 3? We were saved, we were delivered, we were refined and purified to make offerings in righteousness. 
You see, there's only two options for those who encounter the God of justice who has already come into His temple. They are either changed or they are condemned. God will not be ignored. And praise God, we know from verses 6 and 7, He stands ready to change us. And this is possible, look at verse 6, because He does not change. When we stop turning aside from God's statutes, verse 7, and instead we turn to God, we find that He is like the father of the prodigal son who is already waiting for us, peering down the road, waiting our total surrender to Him, running to meet us when we turn to Him. And when we turn to the Lord, verse 1 tells us that the messenger and the maker of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and He has come, why? To refine us like silver and gold, verse 3. He has come to remove all the impurities of our heart and to melt us down to where all the stuff that isn't the gold and silver that God wants to work into our lives drops out and all that is left is a heart that burns white hot and is pure for the God who made us and the God who deserves the fame and the glory that He seeks in chapter 1, verse 6. He has come and washed us clean as though with a fuller's soap, which means a strong detergent for bleaching clothes. He takes our robes of wickedness and turns them into robes of righteousness. How has He done this? How is it that this refining has become possible? How is it that He can refine us until we are pure and wash us until we are spotless? We just sang about it. He gave Himself to us. He died for us. He released us by our sins, by His blood, Revelation 1.5. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. And He purchased us. He bought us back from sin and death and slavery. He purchased the church with His own blood. And why does God come and purify his people? Why does He buy us back with His blood with such a costly sacrificial offering? Did you see that in verse 3? He offers Himself for us to refine us so that we may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. Did you get that? One of the primary reasons that God has saved the people for Himself is that they might become givers. God gave Himself to us to qualify us to give ourselves to Him. But pastor, why giving? Why this stuff about giving? Well, one, because it's in God's Word. But also because the currency of love is sacrifice. How do you know, wives, that your husband loves you? How do you know, husbands, that your wife loves you? You know it because of what they give to you, what they lay down for you, because there's this mutual process of submitting ourselves to one another in a relationship where we give and we give and we give. Why? Because we love. And when God comes and offers Himself to us in love, He is creating within us a heart that if it were truly converted, wants and delights to give ourselves right back to Him in love. And then the nations we find in verse 12 see that Jesus really is our treasure because of what we will give in the service to His great name. We are saved through the gospel God gave. And we are saved to the gospel. We give as God gave. But secondly, 
for us to give God the honor and the reverence that He is due. We don't just need to be refined through His sacrifice for the purpose of giving. We actually have to fulfill the purpose that God created us for. We've, we've got to generously give our resources and our lives to Him in righteousness. Did you notice how we turn to God in verse 8? It's, it's not thinking happy thoughts. It's not crying or having more resolve. All those are good things, by the way. They often accompany repentance. But in Malachi... And throughout the scripture, real repentance, a real turn to God, always results in generous action. A giving over of oneself to God. Think of the early church in Acts. There in chapters 3, 4, and 5, the Holy Spirit shows up. People start getting saved. And what do they do? They start selling and giving as anybody has need. Oh, you've got a need? Great. Bring your need into the house because I'm going to bring my wealth into the house. And then suddenly the church is exploding as they're caring for one another. And then the world is watching the church and saying, I can't believe the church is acting like that. And then more people are saying, if that's real, then I want to get in on that. And then suddenly God changes their heart too. And what do they become? They become generous givers. Wherever revival happens, generous giving breaks out. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Duping people his whole life, taking more than he should take. But when Jesus comes into his house and Jesus really gets a hold of his life, Zacchaeus says, Jesus didn't have to tell him to do this. Zacchaeus voluntarily gives four times what the law requires in returning to people not only what he stole, but giving them even more. But in Malachi, God's people weren't being generous. God's people weren't revering his name. Four times in verses 8 and 9, we, were, we read the word robbing. They were robbing God. The word rob means to take by force, to walk into God's house and take what is His. How were they robbing God? In verse 8 it tells us, in tithes and offerings. It isn't that they weren't giving, by the way. When the offering plate went past, something was in there every Sunday. When the bulletin came out and there was budget to actual, there was some money that had been in the plate. It's not that they weren't giving. It's that they weren't giving their best. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, Malachi, God asked through the prophet Malachi, I'm going to translate it, I'm going to put it in the Daniel James Palmer version, the, D, the DJPV. This is what God asks of His people in verse 8 of chapter 1. What if you cheated the IRS the way you're cheating God? The Persian governor is getting his taxes. Do you really feel an IR fear an IRS audit more than you fear the Lord God Almighty who made you and made you His? Bring the whole tithe, Malachi says in verse 10, which means the tenth part. The word tithe means tenth part, one-tenth of. Bring the tenth part of all the produce of the land. Not some of the produce, not the produce after you paid your taxes, not the produce after you paid your Social Security, not the produce after, 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 after. Bring the whole tithe into the house of the Lord. Deuteronomy 12, 6 and 11 and 17. That's right, giving under Mosaic law was 10% on the gross plus offerings all the time. They had a whole calendar year of offerings beyond the tithes, including gifts of produce and material goods and personal valuables. 
We, we like to minimize the Old Testament standard, don't we? And then we like to say, if I could just get to the Old Testament standard, that's fine. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. When I consulted for churches on this very issue of generous giving, I got a lot of questions. One of the questions I got was, should I tithe on gross or net? And I wanted to be nice about it. And the best answer I could come up with was, whichever one you would like God to bless. The point of this sermon by the way, North Roanoke, is not the financial situation at North Roanoke Baptist Church. It's not about North Roanoke having more money. That is not the point. The point of this sermon is the fundamental condition of our hearts. I, I could care less about the financial implications of this sermon other than God really getting our hearts. Because if God really gets our hearts in this area, watch out world. Watch what God will do among the nations. Here's what is clear, by the way. How much should I give? Here's what is clear. If God has purified your heart and washed you in the blood of the Lamb, He has made you a part of His kingdom of priests. Why? For the purpose of presenting to Him offerings in righteousness. Verse 3. And look at verse 4. Offerings that will please Him. How do we do anything in righteousness? We do it by faith. As the prophet Habakkuk has told us just a few weeks ago, the righteous will live by faith. We give in such a way that making the gift requires faith. For some of you, faith means getting started. Make a first gift. I've, in consulting with churches in the area of generous giving, you'd be amazed the number of people who have sat in pews for decades and they've never once supported the work of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's been amazing to see people write their first check with tears streaming down their eyes and to say, I'm getting started. For others of you, you need to get steady. To go from an occasional giver, well, I happen to be blessed this month and have a little bit extra in my checking account, so I'm finally going to give something, and then six months later you do the same thing. You need to just get steady. You need to develop a budget and begin the regular habitual practice of saying, God, I want to give you the reverence and the glory that you're due and trust that you'll do something with it. For others of you, you need to get serious. You've been stuck at 25 to 3% of your income because you've been taking out and taking out and taking out and taking out and then doing the math. And you need to move from 3 to 5% to 10% of your gross. And you need to get there as fast as you can. And you need to build a budget to get there. Do you know what happens when you give generously? When you plan to give generously, you begin to evaluate your whole life and see, well, we, we could make some changes here for the glory of Christ. We could adapt over here for the glory of Christ. And then suddenly you're on your way to building a budget that helps you be more efficient everywhere and to give God the glory in every aspect of your life. It's amazing how God works that way. For some of you, you need to get unstuck. You, some of you like the set it and forget it plan. Well, I, I locked in at 10% in 1972, and I've been there ever since. Oh yeah, God's given me many raises. He gave me some promotions along the way. He blessed me beyond measure. I could have never dreamed or hoped for all that God has done in my life, but I'm locked in at 10. Where is that in the Bible? God is leading you to get unstuck from the 10% mentality and to, and to give Him 
the, the first fruits, the best of the best. And some of you need to get strategic. There's some of you here this morning that got a stock portfolio. You've got property that you don't use anymore. And you're still putting cash in the offering plate every week, which is great. But there's a stock which would be tax-advantaged significantly that you have if you wanted to give that. Some of you need to think about including your local church in your last will and testament. You say, well, I don't know about that. Can you think of a better way to say to your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids how much Christ means to you than to include the work of the gospel in your dying breath? What if your dying breath, what if your last breath was your largest gift in the history of your life? Stacy and I have included our local church. We've included the seminary that I intended in our estate plan. Yes, we're going to provide for our kids, but we're also going to provide for the gospel. And we want, when we die, we want our kids to see that when mom and dad die and they're buried in the grave, that they were still doing something for the gospel, trusting that the gospel is going to go forth until Christ comes and raises our body up again. When we really get the gospel, God gives us a desire to go deeper than seems practical, to reorient our budgets and our lives for the sake of the gospel. One more story about when I was consulting. A lady came to me. It actually was a very public venue. I was standing right here in a church house in Tennessee, and there were about 50 people all seated over here, and a lady sitting right about where you are, ma'am, was staring at me the whole time, and she was listening so intently, and I could see that God was doing something in her heart. I didn't know anything about this lady before I showed up that night. And at the very end, you know when you're done, and you give the polite, are you sure there's no more questions, and you think everybody's going to disperse? And then there's the long pause, and then she said, How can I know I'm giving enough? She began to weep. And she said, My husband and I do very well for ourselves and our kids. We have incredibly strong retirement funds and a strong savings account. Our business is great. It's up every year. How can I know I'm giving enough? And I asked her this one question. Has it ever truly cost you something to give to Christ? In that moment, a trickle of tears became a wave of emotion. And the words that began to come out of her mouth challenged everyone in the room, including this pastor. That day changed me in terms of how I approached generous giving because of what I saw God do in somebody that I was trying to help understand generous giving. In front of 50 people, she choked out these words. We've always been tithers. We've always done more but my giving has never, ever, really, actually cost me something. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. I was reminded of David's words. He said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That lady went on to so generously support her church in the fundraising initiative that I was a part of, that her giving in the next two years tripled. I went on to learn that their marriage, though it looked good on the outside, that they were struggling mightily on the inside. But when she and her husband had to get together and get on the same page and start to do radical stuff for the gospel in their finances, guess what happened to their marriage? Their marriage was 
rescued. Their children began to see mom and dad really care about this stuff. And their children began, though they were running from the Lord and going off to college and living the party life, they started to wonder, well, what has gotten hold of mom and dad? They aren't just talking about Jesus and going to church on Sunday. They're giving their lives and their resources for the gospel. This, this Jesus must be real. This one act of generous giving turned an entire family upside down. Here's a question that J.D. Greer poses pastor at a church in Durham, what does our use of money show that we really delight in, that we really worship? Here's the reality. If we understand what we've been given and respond as the Spirit leads, we will move from facing financial challenges to pursuing fantastic opportunities to bless others in Jesus' name. I have a list of things that I'd love to see North Roanoke be able to do here. But in the interest of time, I've gone a bit long already. I'm going to skip that and hold it for a future sermon. But it's good stuff. There's so much stuff we could do in Jesus' name right here in our valley to bless others. The nations really could see it if we would go in Jesus' name. Now some of you this morning, you've been burned in the past. You've, you've got very, you have a high threshold of distrust of the church. And I'm terribly sorry about that. You've seen pastors take advantage. You've seen pastors build three and a half million dollar houses that are 16,000 square feet. You've seen all sorts of stuff. Here's what I want you to know as your pastor. I've been here about eight months and everything that I've observed here has been nothing but trustworthy. And if that's your issue, well, I can't trust the church. Fine. Give it somewhere else. But don't let that excuse prevent you from being a generous giver and getting in on the blessing of being a generous giver. Now, I certainly hope that North Roanoke will be a church that can earn your trust, and I believe we are conducting ourselves in a trustworthy manner. But if that's your hang-up, go give it somewhere else until you can trust us. Don't let that be the excuse that prevents you from getting in on what God wants to do in your heart. Now, some of you this morning, Malachi knows where you live. You've got doubts. You say, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I want to do it. I, I think I'm angry at the pastor right now. He needs to be quiet and stop talking about giving. And you know what Malachi says? God threw Malachi in verse 10. Test me now in this. Test me. Now, this testing does not violate Deuteronomy 6.16, which reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a different word, which means to test God cynically. This test means to test God from a position of honest doubt, with the intent to encourage and approve faith in God. Lord, Lord, I know you love me. I know you gave yourself for me. But I have major doubts in this area, but I'm going to go out on a limb and test you. And God says, test me. And when you test me, expect me to show up, which is our third point. When we actually go all in and test God in this, we should expect a harvest in our own hearts and among the nations. Look how God responds when we take the test. He opens the windows of heaven, verse 10, a figure of speech for rain and abundant agricultural produce as tangible signs of God's covenant blessings. This does not, by the way, necessarily mean 
that when you give a tithe of your whole income, that suddenly you're going to get that promotion, or suddenly you're going to play the stock market just right, you're going to buy Apple before it goes crazy. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is that God will provide for His people every resource necessary for fulfilling His mission. Do you want that, North Roanoke? Do you want God to provide in North Roanoke Baptist Church every resource necessary to fulfill all that He would call us to do if we were obedient to His great name? Secondly, He will pour out His blessing until it overflows, literally until there's not enough room for it. Hill writes this, The response to the obedience of His people will be a flood tide of divine blessing. Then in verse 11, he will rebuke the devourer for us. The devourer will not touch the harvest of souls and the harvest of spiritual fruit that God has for us. God will play prevent defense and allow his great name to go right on straight away to the nations. Why are so many churches weak and ineffective in our day? There's consultants and gurus and books, but if we would just read Malachi 3, I think we'd find the answer to most of what ails the church today. We are weak and ineffective today because it is impossible to rob God and reap a harvest at the same time. It cannot be done. And until we get this right, our spiritual growth personally and corporately and to the ends of the earth will be stunted to the extent that we rob God. There's a whole lot of stuff that Pastor Daniel wants to do. But until we get this right, may as well shut the doors. What kind of harvest should we expect? First, we should expect a personal harvest. It's been said that we are never more like Christ than when we give. And when we give, like the vine who gave himself for us, we, the branches, will bear much fruit. Christ said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's interesting to me in church life that we've put sacrificial giving at the end of the sanctification spectrum. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, come to Jesus, trust Jesus, and one day, about 50 years from now, you'll think about generous giving. First, you need to pray, you need to read your Bible, you need to come to church, you need to do all these other things. Does Jesus do that? Jesus does the opposite, doesn't he? When we come to Jesus, he says, give me everything, and then everything else will start to take care of itself. Some of you have had a roadblock in your prayer, in your quiet time, in your, evangel in your evangelistic fervor, in your church attendance, in your fellowship with everybody else. Why? Because you put the one thing that unlocks the door to everything else at the end. I can't tell you when I've consulted with churches the number of men and women who I have seen weeping in front of me. Why? Because they started to give and then everything else, all the joy that God promises for us in the Christian life, it just started to flow into their heart. Why? Because they started obeying in the thing that's hardest to obey in. And you start obeying there, watch what God does with the rest of your life. There is a personal harvest. But secondly, there's a harvest of nations. God honors our giving by going before us and clearing the obstacles to spiritual conquest. And then He sends us a harvest. He tells us in verse 12, All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. When we empty ourselves for God as He emptied Himself for us, 
The nations will not be able to resist the powerful allure of our infinite treasure. And it will be as God promised to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why, North Roanoke, must we talk about generous giving? Because nothing less than our hearts and the nations are at stake. Why do we give? Because the King of glory has made us His. For that reason, I think it's most appropriate that we conclude a message about the ability that God has given us to give generously to Him with where that starts. With what God has given to us to make all that possible. So why don't we pray and I'll ask our deacons to come as we prepare to offer the Lord's Supper. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that we even get to be a part of showing the world how amazing and famous and glorious you are. We recognize, Lord, that none of this would be possible. None of this would be possible unless you had come to refine us and to make us like pure gold and pure silver and to wash us clean and give us your robes of righteousness. God, we understand we can't earn your favor. We can't earn your love. And yet, God, we also understand that because we love you, we want to give and we want to give ourselves generously for you and for the good of all nations. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we come to your table this morning to examine our hearts and then to partake, knowing, Lord, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. In Jesus' name, amen.